The crisis is really a more of a global crisis, particularly in the West, but in America is more pronounced. Uh, for some strange reason, more than any other nation on the face of the earth, in America we have a profound foundation, which is biblical foundation, moral foundation, ethical foundation. All of that was built on the scripture, Old and New Testament. And so that is why now this crisis is more pronounced here even than Europe or elsewhere. And so the crisis is the crisis of truth. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Today, I'm excited to welcome back my dad, Dr. Michael Youssef, for a special episode of Candid Conversations. If you've been overwhelmed by the division in our nation if you feel discouraged by our culture's departure from biblical principles, if you feel like the world is becoming more and more hostile toward your faith, we're going to unpack all of that today. My goal is to encourage you and empower you to be the salt and light needed in the coming days. And that's what my dad's new book, Hope for This Present Crisis, is all about. Before we get started, I have an exciting giveaway to share. If you would like to receive a copy of Hope for This Present Crisis, we'd love to send it to you as a gift. The first 25 people who rate and leave a review for Candid Conversations on your favorite listening platform and then send a screenshot of that review to candid at ltw.org will receive a copy of the book with our gratitude. Your review could also get you a shout-out in an upcoming episode of the podcast. Now, on to our conversation. Dad, hey, welcome back to Candid Conversations. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, You've been having so many wonderful personalities, and sort of you really reached bottom here. <laughs> you're in the top ten. Um, today we're talking about your latest book, right. Hope for This Present Crisis, right. The Seven-Step Path to Restoring a World Gone Mad. And right. my first question is, what is this present crisis? Sure. Well, it's an important question. In fact, initially we were gonna, I was going to call the book This Present Crisis, but then because the very end of the book I show seven ways by which we can really provide hope in the middle of the crisis, that we decided to go with the very last chapter, hope, and that is the important part. But I'm not skirting the crisis. I go through the crisis step by step by step, and actually where we came from, how we got here. And the crisis is really a more of a global crisis, particularly in the West, but in America is more pronounced. Uh, for some strange reason, more than any other nation on the face of the earth, in America we have a profound foundation, which is biblical foundation, moral foundation, ethical foundation. All of that was built on the Scripture, Old and New Testament. And so that is why now this crisis is more pronounced here even than Europe or elsewhere. And so the crisis is the crisis of truth. Really, if you kind of boil it down, even though I go to show the application of that in education, in the home, and the environment, and all those issues that 
are dominating our culture and our society and our news. Mm. But the bottom line is a crisis of the truth. The truth, and that is I'm talking about absolute truth. I'm talking about the truth of God on which the nation is founded. When that disappears, when absolute truth goes away, the truth now is relative, and therefore we are no longer having boundaries. And um, once the boundaries are moved, imagine uh, two teams of football players. You're a football player. You played football in high school, so you'll understand this illustration even better than I'm the one who's making it. And uh, there are no rules in the game. And any team can go anywhere and take the ball whichever direction they want to. Imagine the chaos Mm -hmm. in that game. And that's really if you take that and you translate it to our culture, in the judiciary and in the executive branch and all the branches of government and the media more specifically, imagine what kind of a ball game is that when people are carrying the ball in all different directions. There's no goal right. to reach and no boundaries to keep the players in. So if you draw that out to its logical conclusions, the ends is anarchy. It is. Which is really the only non-God ordained system of government, right? Exactly. You've obviously pointed out that this is more pertinent, more visible from the American perspective. I wonder if you could talk us a little bit through the causes, the effects, and the the tipping point that brought us there. Let me point to the fact that Satan is a very clever fellow. He's very clever. In fact, the Bible said he appears as an angel of light, and he disguises himself. Right. So we know that, and therefore we know and we can look and we can plot the scheme going way back even to the forming of Planned Parenthood. And then later on, as Marxist ideologies and Marxist teaching, like Howard Zen's book about— People's history. What used to be armchair in the colleges and the graduate schools, now it become common— now it's called cancel culture, but it really what it is, is he's called the critical race theory. And then the critical race theory, which I really discuss in a great deal in the book, because if you start thinking that the world is divided into the oppressors and the oppressed, there's no in between. Right. And so one is bad, one's good. And therefore, the tension is created. But that's not new. This is how Karl Marx himself developed the Marxist theory. He learned from Kierkegaard that the mind is made of thesis and antithesis. And the two are opposites of each other and constantly fighting each other. And so he takes that and he says, well, in any society, there is a proletariat and there's the elite. Once you create a division and you keep hammering away, hammering away, hammering away at that division, hammering away, and it creates separation, but that separation creates confusion. Once you create confusion, you're able to bring your theory or whatever it is, whether fascism, Nazism, or Marxism, all these other isms, and into play, and people accept it. After you say it for so many years, people are going to accept it. Howard Zinn's book, about racism is really has been influencing many generations. And a lot of people kind of laughed at it and didn't take it seriously, but a lot of kids have. And those are the kids today who are saying, yes, racism 
is something that we can combat by legislation. We can combat by oppressing the oppressors and just turn the table around. And they have no critical faculty, I'm talking about the spiritual critical faculty, to say that racism is the issue of the heart and that no one can change that heart and turn it around from being racist and bigots and and hater to being loving and caring, regardless of the color of the skin. I was born in Africa, and I came to this country because I realized that there is a self-correction in this country. Through the history, I studied that even as a, as a high school student in Egypt, and there's a self-correcting mechanism, and that gives me faith and gives me hope. But that's changing now. That self-correcting mechanism is now turning into violence, turning into revolution, turning into it's permissiveness. It's overcorrecting in some sense. Right? Uh, not overcorrecting, it's overturning, really, in many ways. And when you overturn something, you're not going to get something good. But when you correct something that is good, but it's just went high wire for a little bit, you correct it and bring it back to where it's supposed to be. But revolution have never solved any problems. Revolutions created problems. I remember I was four years old when a revolution took place in Egypt, just like Castro's revolution was Nasser's revolution and all these revolutions going on in the 50s. But the revolution didn't do anything. It just took a great country and destroyed it. And until, you know, later on things, you know, change. But revolution never, 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 I don't care what kind of a revolution it is. We know that the sexual revolution and the cultural revolution and this revolution and that revolution, they do not solve problems. They create more problems. What do you say to the person who is either listening to this or reads your book and says, oh, Michael's just an alarmist? Mm. Everything is documented. And it's the same thing as I do with my preaching. If it is not in the Word of God, if I can't have the Word of God to prove it, then it's just I always actually make, and those who listen to me know this, I always make a distinction. I say, this is what I think versus thus says the Lord. I cannot confuse the two. There are a lot of people confusing their own minds with the mind of God. Unfortunately, they get us into trouble. Mm. And so I always document, if I don't have the evidence, I am not going to stand for it, and I'm not going to defend it. And so all I ask the person to do is please look at the evidence, read the book, find out how I present the argument, and look, it's still, thank God, a free country and somebody can disagree. But the issue is, we are at a crisis mode right now. And unless God intervenes, and unless God's people wake up in time, we could be in deep trouble in the next generation. Now, I want to tell you something else that's very important. We talked about Satan, and we talked about his plot, and we talked about his deception, which led us to where we are. But the Christians, and I am the hardest on people in my profession, if I use the word, the people in the pulpits, the pastors in the pulpit, we are the ones, to start with, who have abdicated. Mm. And consequently, as my friend Roy Ludwig used to say, as goes the pulpit, so goes the pew. Mm-hmm. And as goes the pew, goes society. Right. And so we abdicated and withdrew from the academia. 
We abdicated and withdrew from the political arena. We abdicated and withdrew from the um, social standing. We abdicated the media. We left it to the left wing. We never, never took a stand and or tried to have a plan to invade the media. I remember one time I was asking a friend of mine who is a well-known journalist in, in the country, in the United States, about my eldest daughter uh, journalistic endeavor. And he said, please, please, please tell her not to go and work for Christian magazine or Christian newspaper. Nothing wrong with that. He said, but just every Christian person goes into there and they said, we need to invade the secular culture. She needs to go and get a a job in the secular world. And so I want to encourage young people who know and love Jesus and who know the truth and the truth already has set them free to have the gumption and go out and invade secular society, whatever their profession may be. You know, we see a lot of Christians fighting fire with fire on social media and feeding this sort of us versus them Mm. mentality in our culture. Mm. You've started to address this, I think, in some points here in the conversation, but how do we engage in the spiritual battle at hand without getting lost sure. in the culture war. That is a great question. And you've got to understand, until you understand, <laughs> not you, but we as a whole, understand that our fight is not with flesh and blood. Mm. You have to start there, because if you don't start there, you're going to have a civil war, basically. We're going to fight each other. But until you understand that our fight is not with flesh and blood, it is with the principalities and the powers and the heavenly places. And therefore, we need to start with dependence on God. Yes, we stand in the arena. Yes, we defend the truth. Yes, we do it all lovingly, thoughtfully, knowing, looking at them with with sympathy, even with sorrow in our hearts for them, because the Satan has blinded their eyes. And therefore, we do it not in anger, that is why and we don't take matters into our own hands and become violent like they are, but we do it lovingly and thoughtfully and even graciously because unless we do that, we're just like them. And we must be distinguished that our weapon is a weapon of love. It's not a weapon of the carnal weapons of man. That's very, very important. If you don't start there, then... Katie by the door. I mean, it's all over. So we've got to start, and then we'll begin to lovingly explain the truth to them. And then believing God is the one who's fighting on our behalf. Otherwise, uh, it's up to me, and I'm going to do it. Then we're going to get into trouble. So you wrote this book before the events that took place on Capitol Hill. Sure. Uh, I think a, a lot of Christians could have read sections of your book and then said what you just said. It's up to me. We need to do something. But what ends up happening is that there's still a rejection of the truth, even on the right, the conservative uh, side of the spectrum. So I guess my question is, in light of what we've just been talking about, do we sometimes make too much of the enemy? We make him to be uh, more powerful or, or the world or the, the, the sort of the influencers in media and politics and this sort of thing. We sometimes give them more credit than well, we should. if we don't have the God spectacles, yes, of course. And it's going to be right, left, and it's going to be them, us, and it's going to be a division. 
And it'll but be the football game that you described. The football game. Everybody's everywhere. And nobody's aiming to go anywhere. And that is a disaster. We must always remember what God said. He said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You have to do your part. You have to speak lovingly and telling the truth in love. But in the end of the day, you have to trust God. He is going to fight the battle for us. But that doesn't mean we're going to sit on our blessed assurance (laughs) and do nothing. But we do our part. We do the witnessing. We do the loving. We do the outreaching. We do all that, knowing that without him, we can do nothing. Hmm. Should we, again, in light of what we've been talking about, should we expect more from lost people? You know, I think sometimes we get confused and we look at those influencers and those people in the high positions, whether it's the media or the political world, and we sort of think, how could they? How Hmm. could they go against God? How could they, you know, fill in the blank? (laughs) Yeah, it's like saying to a blind man, Look how beautiful, bright sunshine today. Yeah. Look how green the grass is. That is exactly what he's saying. Can't you see it? You mean, are you so dumb you can't see this? He says, yeah, I'm blind. I can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it is erroneous on our part, the believer's part, to expect anything from the non-believers other than what their God has taught them, what their God has led them to do. And so that's why I said earlier, feeling sorry for them because the God of this world has blinded them. And it's like with Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh is a type of Satan in the Bible. And every time he sees the crisis and the pain, and he said, okay, okay, I'll, get, I'll, I'll let you go, I'll let you go. But in the end, God of this world has blinded him, and he hardens his, heart, his own heart. So God says, hey, I'll give you more of what you want. And so we need to be aware that we are dealing with Pharaoh, and the only way to overcome is by the power of our God, because he is greater and bigger than all of the gods of Egypt. And he demonstrated that. And he can do it again. Your book has this sort of um, seven things. Right. It's not They're not really steps, because no. there's not a sure. specific order to them, but they're, they're sort of a seven-path plan. Right. Uh, and path may not even be the right word, but the ways that we can impact these, they're really major areas of our world and our right. society. Right. Without giving too much away, and yes. people then can don't have to read the book. But what is the end goal of working those fears sure. out? And then I have a hypothetical for you right. uh, after that. Well, the end goal is always what Jesus said, that we're being salt and being light. And without salt, the fish or the meat will rot. And so we got to be that salt. And that is why those seven things is what you do to be a salt. Uh, what light does is is light the darkness, because otherwise everybody's stumbling in the dark. But when you shine the light, uh, some people will be able to see. Some will say, hey, turn that light off. I don't want to see. But uh, Man we know, loves darkness. Exactly. The, John the, the, chapter Christ 1. Yeah. Came, yeah, John chapter 1 in the prologue. He came, light came into darkness, but darkness <laughs> loved Men the darkness. The the Man loves yeah. the dark. wanted to stay in the dark. But... Uh, that is why we must and we have to uh, to just wring our hands on the one hand or take things into our hands on the other. Those are the two extremes and not honoring to God, mm. not honoring to our stewardship that he has placed in our hand. I often feel that 
especially in writing of this book, that um, I grew up in a Christian community that's persecuted and therefore was trained in learning how to defend the gospel and how to stand your ground without being like the persecutors and not violent and not angry. And I often wonder that at this, here I'm in my 70s, if God had not prepared me in the first 19 years of my life so that I can help others in the sunsets years of my life. You bring up an interesting point there, and I'll come back to my hypothetical in a minute. But, you know, a lot of Christians are quick to cry persecution right. uh, when someone disagrees with or challenges them on their worldview or their right. point of view. What does real persecution look like right. in America? Yes. And how do we prepare for it and acknowledge it yep. without playing the victim? Well, I'll give you an example. Your friend in Australia, that's the kind of persecution that you would have in the West, uh, who, when he took a stand, lost his very highly paid executive position. Or a doctor in the socialized medicine in England, in the system where they get paid by the government, when he actually asked the patient, would you like me to pray with you, a Christian doctor? And she said, yes, I prayed with her, but her daughter didn't like it, so she sued him. He lost his job. So that is the kind of persecution that we're seeing in the West, and we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more people losing their jobs. Uh, They're going to be taken off social media. Uh, Whatever they're going to do to harass us. And without I'm not big on victims' mentality because I've never, ever, even growing up as a persecuted minority, saw myself as a victim. I always believed that I worship a great God and He is going to deliver me, and I always have confidence in my God. And therefore, if you have a victim's mentality, you're going to do the wrong things. You're really going to do the wrong things. Think of the disciples. They come back after being beaten and said they consider themselves honored to be worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, that's the mindset we need to implore believers in churches to adopt without being wimps and without wimping out and without hiding and without saying, oh, they're going to get me, so I'm going to stay away and hide somewhere. No, we take our place in the battlefield, but be sure that God is the one who's fighting for us. That's a tough place to be, right? I mean, it's in in the middle, you know, that path is narrow, where... I am trusting in the sovereignty of God, yeah. but I'm also willing to do the things that I, f- I take the believe hits. he's called me to yeah. do. And take the hits. Yeah. 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 But then see the hits as great things, sure. not bad things. Yeah. Without see, hitting back. Yeah, exactly. Being honored to suffer for Christ, but at the same time, continuously to lovingly saying, thus says the Lord. Okay, my hypothetical question is, throughout human history, we've seen the gospel really move, Mm. you know, a moving of the lampstand from the Middle East region, where it's origin, to uh, Europe, to Western Europe, and now to the United States. I guess my question is, what if we see a moving of that lampstand further on? It's already moving. It's in Indonesia and Korea and in China. And the Chinese sending missionaries 
Even though the most persecuted people on the face of the earth right now, they are sending missionaries overseas. Your hypothetical question, it's not hypothetical at all. I really believe with all my heart, and if you look at history very closely, uh, you are exactly right. There was in Jerusalem, moved to Antioch, went down to Alexandria, and for 300 years, most people don't know this, the center of Christianity was in Alexandria, the center of influence, Mm. and the the center of Christian thought was in Alexandria, Egypt. And then it moved to Rome. Rome did not, you know, could have Johnny come lightly. They, yeah, they, they, yeah. they all say, oh, the Church of Rome was founded by Peter. Always no, no, no. 300 years after Christ. Peter died in Rome. <laughs> Persecuted. <laughs> exactly. And so the Roman Church did not come on the scene until later uh, in the 4th century. And so from there, it moved with the Reformation into the Germanic lands and then England and from England, so many missionaries, I always say my British audience when I'm there, I said, you know, don't give up on your country because you've given us the English Reformation. You've given us the John and Charles Wesley. You've given us Whitfield. Mm. But it came across the Atlantic into America and North America. And America has been for over 200 plus years the center of Christianity. The, we send more missionaries and more support and more money to help other people than any other country in the world. But I personally see this as fading. It's moving away. It's going to Asia. And from Asia, it could get back to Jerusalem because that's where it all began. And I personally believe that's where it's going to end. You know, when Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached around, I mean, literally, now that we know 2,000 years later, is circling the world as a testament to all nations. Then the end will come. And this back to Jerusalem movement in China, Chinese Christians and other Asian Christians is real. They, They really want to evangelize every group of people between China and Jerusalem so that as the gospel make its full circle, we know that the end will come. I personally believe that we are closer to the time of the return of Christ than ever because so many of the signs are there. And there are two groups of people to whom the return of the Lord is going to be. One is going to be a thief in the night. Mm -hmm. They are not prepared. To the others, it's a woman in childbirth. And a woman in childbirth is expecting, knows the day is coming, and sort of waiting for that glorious day. And so I pray and believe and I challenge your listeners to be living like a woman in childbirth that is expectant a return of the Lord because all the signs are there. And the signs in the heavens, the increase in knowledge, and all the things the Scripture talks about, all here. Now, whether it's tomorrow or a hundred years from now, I don't know. Nobody knows. But I think we need to be living with that expectations. Just finally, to kind of wrap up that sure. thought, how do we as Christians, because a lot of people will hear that and think, uh, you know, Michael's given up on America, which is certainly not the case. How do we look at that perspective in a helpful way without yeah. taking on um, a sort of nationalistic, uh, too much of a patriotic thing, sure. but seeing that as 
God's sovereign hand moving yes. and still holding on to the truths and the things that he's called to? That is an amazing question. It really is. And, and, and thank you for catching me on this. I have not given up in America, even though I'm seeing uh, that the Holy Spirit almost departing uh, our shores, but I have not given up, and that's why we have Awake America. We're having the um, praying for a revival, praying for an awakening, and many of my friends believe that we're going to have a third awakening before the Lord returns, and I would love that more than anything else in the world, and I love to be part of it. I love for it to be in my lifetime. So I have not given them. So thankful you gave me the opportunity to say this. I love this country. This country has done more than any other country on the face of the earth. I dreamed of coming to this country. I tell people who are born in this country, don't take it for granted. They tend to take it for granted. Well, you know, because it's, they, you've never experienced anything else. And I said, if you ever try to take this country for granted, you know, go to Tehran for a month or two or, you know, <laughs> get one way ticket. And then you realize what an amazing gift God has given us. And don't squander it. Don't destroy it. Don't be part to this. But because by being silent and being passive, you are participating in this. And so, no, I thank you for that because I will not, until the Lord takes me home, give up on America. We should not. We must not. We need to do everything that God calls us to do, everything in our disposal, certainly in the use of our time, talent, and treasure, to see to it that people come to Christ and that God would send an awakening to this great country. Maybe he will have mercy on us uh, after all. And, and it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, he uses nations, but he uses individuals and communities as well. And we see churches thriving even in parts of the Middle East today. And so we know even if the appearance of his moving the Spirit has in a general sense moved on, we know that he is always has his remnant of believers. Absolutely. um, Absolutely. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. Dad, thank you for taking the time. We've covered a lot. Thank you the for book, having me. The book is uh, Hope for This Present Crisis, The Seven-Step Path to Restoring a World Gone Mad. I think you've managed to worm your way up into the top five of our guests. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much for having me. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us. The first 25 people who rate and leave a review for Candid Conversations will receive a copy of the book, Hope for This Present Crisis. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.